we got a good one today. It's a whole 11 verses. Um, it's Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Um, and I think because it's a big chunk of text, we're just going to read that from the top, and then we'll go from there. Oh. oh, also, if you've got a Bible with you, good on you. If you don't, and you like one, we've got them at the end of rows and stuff, and we can um, bring them in. Just whap a hand in the air and take it home with you if you'd like a Bible. That'd be cool. So, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you, who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. Uh, It's a great passage. It's like, I mean, I think it's good. Uh, It's very liberating, very exciting stuff. Um, and we're going to look at it through that lens of this kind of who am I question that we've been going through as a church. Um, super conveniently today as well, it breaks into three pretty nice sections. The preacher's dream, three points. Uh, so it's going to be wonderful stuff. But before we do that, we're going to zoom out a little bit. Let's talk about movies, guys. Hollywood, lights, camera, action. I love it. Name a movie, I've already seen it. Big fan. Um, let's talk about the greatest tetralogy of all time. Does anyone know what tetralogy means? There we go. Four films. You would be hard-pressed to find a good tetralogy. You might be thinking, Spy Kids. You'd be wrong. (laughs) You might be thinking, Inspector Gadget. Doubly wrong. You might be thinking, The Alvin the Chipmunks films. Triply wrong. Appalling choices. But there is one that rises above all that is a phenomenal tetralogy. Let me talk to you guys about the Ocean series. Right. Oceans 11, Oceans 12, Oceans 13, and then just when you think they're going to go Oceans 14, they hit you with that cheeky Oceans 8 from earlier on this year. Um, I'm aware not everyone's seen it, so I'll lightly break it down for you. But I love these films, guys. I think they're flipping great. I love a heist film in general, but there's something specific about the Oceans films that I really, really like, and we're going to break it down. What I like is that team assembly moment where a bunch of ragtags with different skills and abilities get brought into one unit and have to work together. Um, so the team all starts with Brad and George, the best. Why aren't these guys in every single movie together? Like, Bridget Jones Diary, scrap it, bring these guys in, be great. Um, but they're Danny Ocean and Rusty Ryan. Um, Danny's a big picture guy, Rusty's a logistics man, the enforcer, gets stuff done. Um, they're partners in crime and they're heist planners extraordinaire. But there's a whole team behind them. Starts with those two, and then they bring in Linus the pickpocket, Ruben the business tycoon, Saul the old pro who's brought out of retirement for one last heist, 
which becomes three less ice. Um, Basher, the Cockney munitions expert. Frank, the car dealer. Livingston, the computer whiz. Uh, the Malloy brothers, who are mechanics and drivers and stuff. And then riding out the 11, the amazing Yen, who is a gymnast for some reason. <laughs> I think we've got a picture of the whole team, right? There we go, all 11 of them. Um, anyway, to spoil the plot for you guys of all of these movies, it's always the same. They bring together a team of ragtags, they plan a heist, they pull it off, everybody's happy, except like the casino owners and stuff. But, back to what I actually like about these films. I love that when they're assembling the team, you've got these like shortcuts and it's like two or three seconds of each new person, you get to know their personality and stuff. But you've had about half an hour with George and Brad and then suddenly it's these two, then it becomes Levin, all these bodies in a room together. Now understandably, they don't all get on. Some of the more experienced criminals in the room uh, will look at the computer whiz guy and be like, why is he here? This boy is awkward, doesn't know anything about crime. Or they'll look at the gymnast and think, this boy should be at the Olympics, like he shouldn't be pulling off crimes and capers and stuff. But despite the grumblings and the complaints, Danny and Rusty have built their team, they've established their group. They've said, these guys are in, we're planning a big heist. Um, and then they look to the new guys and they're like, up until now you had no idea what was going on. You were just living your daily lives, but now you're part of our team. You're part of all the goings on. You're fully on board. You're completely and absolutely part of what we do now. The gymnasts and the computer whiz kids had been brought right in as much as the business tycoons and the old pros. So, quick water break. So I think this passage starts off a little bit like that. That's the scene we find ourselves in. There's a bit of grumbling, a bit of uncertainty. There's two groups who are brought together and they haven't famously got on before and they're struggling with that. So you've got the Jewish community who are trying to wrestle with the fact that their rather exclusive club is suddenly a free-for-all. And you've got the Gentiles who are dealing with that unfriendliness and that unwelcomingness, but also trying to figure out what actually being a part of the plan looks like for them. So let's zoom back a little bit more and make things a bit broader. We're all uh, human beings, right? Yes? Good, excellent. Very good to check. Never know. Uh, AI and drones and whatnot. <laughs> and uh, one thing that every single human is looking for, really, is a sense of belonging. Um, we're designed to be social beings, and it doesn't matter if we're introverted or extroverted. We all like to be a part of something. We all like to belong to a thing, a cause, and a group of people. We like to be part of a team. But ironically, despite this basic social need, we can also be quite tribal. Um, we subconsciously draw lines around our people um, and we kind of say this is who's in and this is who's out. Um, that can look a whole bunch of different ways. That can look how we do family. That can look how we do friends. It can look how we do church. Um, and we do it for a bunch of reasons, I think. Sometimes it's insecurity. Um, sometimes we quite like the feeling of superiority. Sometimes we don't like being challenged. But the basic point is we draw these circles and we actually keep some people out. And that's what the Jewish community are doing and had been doing this whole time. And it's what Paul is writing against. Now, I can imagine there's maybe clashes that came in with the new bodies. Um, there's a bit of worry. But actually, what I think is quite relevant to our series right now of our identity is that maybe the Jewish community are worried because being a part of this group was how they'd identified themselves up until this point, and suddenly all these new faces, does that mean that they're distinct anymore? What does that mean for how they view themselves? So they're clinging to a bit of false identity too. 
but this is like a multi-directional passage going two different ways. Uh, it's like a parent speaking to two of their kids who've maybe had like a spat. Um, and whilst the original needs to change their perspective, uh, so too do the Gentiles. They need to know actually like, cool, well, this is what you're being brought into. These are the kind of the rules and the ways now. So what are the Jews, or sorry, not the Jews, the Gentiles. What are the Gentiles actually being brought into? They're being given access to God, essentially. At one time, they weren't at the table, and now they are. There should be no barriers or blockades or things in the way to get to that. They're totally in on it, totally a part of the team. And Paul is saying, not only can you belong and be part of the stuff, but here's what it means for you. When once you were cut off from God, now you have full and total relationship with him. But previous to Jesus coming, a wall had been built up. I was reading um, a commentary about this passage, uh, and it put it like this. Ironically, the instruments through whom God had intended to show his grace to humanity had turned themselves into the chief obstacle to that goal by erecting a barrier between themselves and their mission. It was like the Jews saw the Gentiles and they thought, you don't like God, therefore we don't like you. But then in the reverse, on the other side of that communication, that reads when you're on the other side of the wall, oh, okay, you don't like us, therefore neither does your God, so we want nothing to do with you or your God. So what's this initial part of the passage about? And I think it boils down to what we see in verse 14. And it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. These disagreements, this distance, this awkwardness, it's all gone. It doesn't exist. In the coming of Jesus and the death on, his, on the cross, the wall's been smashed, and there's suddenly no legitimate reason for any dispute or any distance anymore. We're all one family. And like I mentioned before, it's, um, it's kind of like a parent bringing two quarreling children together. I'm not a, a parent, but I believe this is the case. Um, and it's like they're saying, guys, you're, you're brothers. Like, nothing is going to change that. Uh, you're both part of the family. You're both loved, and actually you both love each other, even though right now it maybe doesn't feel that way. So just be brothers. And I think this passage presents a challenge to us. While, like, historically, probably most of us would be Gentiles, I suppose, um, I think actually we should be ready to recognize ourselves in, in the Jewish community of Paul's time. Who are we shutting out in our own lives right now? Or who are we shutting out in a kind of our church life right now? Who are we consciously drawing circles and, and not ooh, bringing in? Whether it's how we dress, how we talk, how we act, our political opinions, biblical knowledge, what events we attend, our jokes and sense of humor, our intellect. Do we sometimes view these things as making us like, more acceptable to God? Because if we do, we're creating walls that God's already brought down. It's like we're picking up the old bricks and just being like, nah, I think this needs to be here. And it makes it harder for others to see and know God when we do that. We're elevating ourselves over our brothers and sisters. So. Jesus has brought inclusion. We're a people that have been brought near. Any distance we create or put up means that we aren't hearing God on this. 
To God, there's no exclusion, and everyone is included. So the first question to answer that, who am I, or maybe better, who are we? We're included. We're part of something. So next up, point numero dos. Who am I? I'm called to peace. Why? So, verses 14 to 18 move into a breakdown of a new humanity. The God has hit the reset in many ways. And in Jesus, we're all a new humanity. In Jesus, we know peace. In Jesus, there's no hostility. And it's important to recognize that that's all in and through him. So, I was um, a bit of a prankster in school. I know I appear like a total angel. You think, this, he's never done anything bad in his life. Um, but I was a bit of a cheeky boy in the educational system. Um, I was, for the most part, I was actually pretty well behaved. Uh, but I liked kind of flirting with the boundaries a little bit and being like, ah, what can I get away with? Um, I'll drop a little thing. Don't have time to talk about it. But uh, I was once involved in a failed kidnapping of our school mascot. Um, <laughs> feel free to chat to me about it afterwards if you want. But uh, for the most part, the repeated victim of a lot of my smaller scale pranks was my French teacher, Madame Ponte. Now, Madame Ponte and I had a mixed relationship. I was always under the impression that she viewed me as a lovable rogue. Um, I think in retrospect, years later, I can look back and she'd be like, man, he was a pain in the neck. <laughs> but uh, for me, French wasn't about learning the language. It wasn't about learning the culture. It was about disrupting the class as much as possible. Um, and I'm sorry, I was bad. I don't do that anymore. Um, but I won't go into detail about those specific things because a magician never tells his secrets. Um, but suffice to say, uh, Madame Ponte had a tough time reining me in. Um, and it got to the point where on a weekly basis, uh, she pretty much she'd, inst she'd instate a new kind of system of authority um, that would basically be trying to deal with me and my co-conspirator, Robbie. So that looked a bunch of different ways. We'd come into class and there'd be like wall charts being like, this is the hierarchy. Um, there would be classroom reshuffles, got moved around a bunch. Um, there'd be numerous kind of temporary expulsions from class. Um, yeah, that was the worst. Um, I'm sorry. Um, but Madame Ponte kept hitting reset. She kept announcing, this is the new way. This is what class looks like from now on. This is the new system of peace that I'm bringing. And it never worked. Um, sadly, Madame Ponte left our school. Not anything to do with me. She just got a new job somewhere else. Um, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> um, but it's different with God. Uh, what we see in verses 14 to 18 is the new humanity that Christ has brought. Um, groups of division, no more. Um, but instead, one unified body. As I said before, when our walls are brought down, suddenly there's no legitimate reason for division. The only legitimate thing is peace, it's unity, it's harmony. We're all reconciled to God by what Christ has done. We're made peaceful by what Christ has done. Our striving, our efforts, our disputes, our social groupings suddenly mean nothing in the face of this peace. Um, I mean, let's read that verse again. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. 
So what this kind of says is it's nothing to do with us, actually. Um, it's him. It's not a case of Paul saying, ah, oh, guys, God would really appreciate if you were peaceful right now. Um, this whole passage is kind of in the imperative. It's not a request. It's a statement. You are a people of peace because of Christ. This new humanity we belong to is a people of peace. And it's from God. It's not self-generated at all. Which means it's low effort in many ways. It means that by just being who we're naturally called to be, suddenly we're bringing peace into situations. Now that's not a call to passivity. It's not a call to just do nothing and be like, oh, sick, I'm peaceful. Um, there's still a need to lean into God, to know more uh, about him and to act more like Jesus. But that's all responsive rather than kind of self-generated or out of guilt or anything. And I get it. People can be difficult. You get your Johnny Chernsides to your Madame Pontes. Um, but we, humanity, are a united family in God. Um, so what does it look like to love difficult people? I think in uh, Colossians 3, we're told how to live as those made alive in Christ. It says in 3, 11, 16, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember that the Lord forgave you, so you've got to forgive others too. And above all, clothe yourself in love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. So to recap on that, who are we? Because of God, we're united and included people, and we're called to peace. We're called to respond to that peace that we now know, and to let it rule our heart, which means that we're called to receive peace, and then also to give it. So maybe today, just take a second to think of your life right now. Where isn't there peace? Where is there division? It might be family, that might be work. I don't know your situation, but I imagine there's some stuff there. Where is there angerness or, or bitterness? Lean back into God, respond to that peace, and give it back. And lastly, our final point. And this takes us into the last verses, uh, 19 to 22. This is where the letter is directed back to the Gentile community which again is all of us because there's no distinction. Um, so let's read that again. But because we've read it a couple of times, we're going to look into the message translation because I really, really like it. Um, and I'm going to keep it real brief at this bit and try to avoid going too deep into my own illustrations of stories because actually I think this final part of the passage is so triumphant and great that I don't want to muddy it up with any of my own words. So in the message it says, that's plain enough, isn't it? you're no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here. With as much right to the name Christian as anyone. God is building a home. He's using us all, irrespective of how we got here and what he's building. He used the apostles and the prophets for the foundation, and now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all parts together. We see it taking shape day after day, a holy temple built by God, all of us built into it, a temple in which God is quite at home. It's good, right? Yeah. I get excited reading that. Um, God's building a home, and he's using all of us as a part of that. No matter how we got here, what our journey looks like, he's used the prophets, the apostles, 
all those kind of big name Bible characters we know as kids, and he's using us too. Brick by brick means that he has a place for us. It means he has a purpose for us. It means that actually we belong. We're not accidentally here. And not only that, that um, thing that God is building, this family reunion we're all a part of, I think the passage indicates that that's God's favorite place. He's quite at home there. When we're all together, one big cosmic history-spanning family, and brought together by God. It's like we show up at the big family house and we drop off our bags at the door. And when we're just hanging out and being together, I think God's like that kind of proud grandfather figure in the middle of this family portrait. Um, he's got a huge beaming smile on his face. And it's a smile that just says like, these are my kids. This is my family and when we're all together, I love it. So, who am I? I'm included. I'm called to peace, and I belong to a family. If you're here today and you're looking around and you think, ah, all these people seem really holy and they can sing really well, and I bet you God loves them, but I'm just like an add-on. I'm a last-minute invite to a wedding. I'm just a B-less guest. Don't discount yourself today. Don't kind of take that family portrait and cut your face out of it. I think God loves every single one of us, heaps. And he delights in the moments when we're in harmony and together. So with that, let's live lives where actually how we live is a bit less like being an awkward guest at a wedding and a bit more like a joyful family reunion. Um, can we stand?